0: And I just wanted to mention a few more things uh, about community ecology before I move on to the final lecture, which I've forecasted to you, where I'm going to try to tie everything together through uh, a research story that I want to tell you about. But before we we, we go to that, I just want to, to present uh, one uh, very fa- very famous ecological experiment from uh, your textbook, um, because the 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 what we're trying to do here in this lecture is, is bring together uh, the first set of lectures where we talked about biogeochemical cycles and productivity, which we, talk, we think of as the functions of ecosystems, with the last set of lectures where we talked about population biology, community structure, where we actually talk about different species and how they interact. And the, the, the structure of the community affects productivity and biogeochemistry. And this, these processes in turn feed back and affect the structure of the community. And this is something ecologists have, have known, um, but it's not easy to demonstrate this experimentally. So one of the, one of the famous experiments was done by David Tillman of the University of, of Minnesota uh, because these are very long-term experiments. And of course it's easier to do these kinds of experiments with plants because they actually stay put. Um, so he asked the question. Is the uh, species diversity of plants in a, in a living community related to the, the, the productivity of that community and also the resistance and resilience of that community to stress? So what he did is he set up plots and he went through generations of graduate students um, and, and, and monitoring these over, over, uh, over ye- many years in which this would be a a plot that had a a single species in the plot and here's a plot that has 24 different species in the plot. He mixed them together, they were all indigenous species that would would grow there. And he showed first that the total plant cover um, here as a percent was a function of the number of species per plot. So, establishing that indeed, productivity, the amount of plant biomass produced, uh, was a function of species diversity. And when you think about this, it makes sense because the more diverse species you have, the more likely they're able to exploit the full suite of resources um, in, the, in the soil and, uh, and are probably more resistant to, um, to predation. He, he, so, the more diverse the plot that has greater biomass. The next thing he looked at, and this is in your textbook. Uh, was the, the, um, the effect of, of the biomass to the resistance to disturbance. So this is a change in biomass one year before a drought and then <coughs> um, to the peak of the drought, showing that this ratio increased with the number of species. And finally, the resilience, that is, how long it takes for the community to recover after it's been stressed, <coughs> excuse me, he was also able to show um, increase as the number of, of species increased. <coughs> so there is a relationship between community structure um, and indeed productivity, resistance and resilience increase if there's more diversity, which is of course one of the motivators for preserving species diversity. Uh, on, on the, on the planet globally. (coughs) Okay. So, now, now we're going to try to tie all this together through this, this, this story. Now going back, so all these, the, the, many of the slides I'm going to show you, you've already seen. Parts of this story, you've already learned from, um, (coughs) from my previous lectures. So I'm trying to tie this together and remind you what you know and help you think about um, how you can apply what you know to uh, current uh, uh, current issues in in global ecology. So re- you remember this: our carbon cycle, our global carbon cycle, um, showing. <coughs> Excuse me a second. I have a <coughs> I have a cough. Okay. Um, Showing the, the photosynthesis of the plants balanced by the, the respiration of the, of the plants and the animals. You learned this. And superimposed on that is our burning of fossil fuels and <coughs> land use changes, i.e., cutting down trees, increasing CO2 in the atmosphere. <coughs> and as we showed last time, I mean, in the first set of lectures, that this sudden uh, excavation of this fossil photosynthate. Uh, is causing a dramatic increase in CO2 in the atmosphere relative to historical concentrations of CO2. (coughs) This is thousands of years uh, before present. And we're worried about that. This is all reminding you, getting you in the train of thought here. We're worried about that because uh, there's good evidence that, that these increases in CO2 are already increasing the temperature of the planet. This is average temperature (coughs) over the last thousand years. And if it isn't already, there's fair certainty that it will uh, in the very near future. So (coughs) let's look here at, uh, in the oceans, my favorite ecosystem, uh, where the phytoplankton that you know all about now, play a critical role in drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. And this, this, Drawdown is, is referred to as the biological pump of the oceans. And we talked about this very briefly. Here's the phytoplankton community photosynthesizing, drawing CO2 into the surface ocean. And then there, because of the food webs that you've learned all about, uh, most of this phytoplankton productivity is eaten by zooplankton and by fish going through the marine food web. As it's eaten, They're respiring, and CO2 is is released, and it goes right out of the system. So CO2 in, CO2 out. But some of that carbon, some of that photosynthetic product, uh, finds its way to the deep ocean through fecal pellets of zooplankton, through aggregates of dead cells, um, um, just basic mucus that fluffs off of jellyfish. Uh, It's all carbon that came from photosynthesis, Uh, But some of it settles down to the deep ocean, where it's chewed upon. Now here are all those deep consumers that I showed you in the DVDs last time. Uh, There's fish and um, squid and and jellyfish in the deep ocean that feed on this carbon that rains down, because there's no photosynthesis down there, uh, and and bacteria that then regenerates that organic carbon into CO2. So this functions as a pump. And and the concentration of carbon dioxide in the deep ocean is is very high. If you look at a depth profile of CO2, this is depth, and this is CO2. (coughs) And at the surface, of course, it's in equilibrium with the atmosphere. And it's very high in the deep ocean. Because of low temperatures and pressures, it can hold. So this is a huge reservoir of CO2, <clears throat> so much that if you, if you did a, a thought experiment and you, you killed all the life in the oceans and just shut off this biological pump and then you let the oceans mix all the way to the bottom, which they can they won't do, but this is just a thought experiment. And you let that all equilibrate with the atmosphere, all of that CO2. Uh, the, the, concentration in the atmosphere would double to triple what it is today. That's how much CO2 is, 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 is in the deep ocean. And so, this is a, a natural function of the ocean ecosystem, is to maintain this pump and maintain this gradient of CO2. <coughs> okay. So, this, you also learned, remember, uh, that the oceans are not this homogeneous soup of of phytoplankton, but there are areas of, of very high phytoplankton biomass and productivity and low biomass and uh, medium in the green here. And we talked about nutrient limitation <coughs> of that primary production, that it was the availability of nutrients. And what I told you was that the the sort of standard understanding of this system was that nitrogen and phosphorus were the primary limiting nutrients, this is all review for your final exam, um, in aquatic ecosystems. <coughs> but I told you that I was going to tell you in the last lecture that there was more to it than that and there is indeed much more to it than that. So for, for years we thought that nitrogen and phosphorus were the, were the nutrients that were regulating this this differential productivity. But, (coughs) but we knew something was wrong with our understanding because if you, these were satellite images, which I just showed you, of the distribution of productivity, showed this distribution. But if you took a simulation model and modeled the global productivity based on the availability of nitrogen and phosphorus to the phytoplankton, this is what the models showed. They said, this is what the ocean should look like, not that. There should be much more productivity here in the equator and down here in the southern ocean than there actually is. And, in fact, people wrote papers, why, why isn't the equator greener? And they had all these different hypotheses for why that might be, uh, a lot of them having to do with, with grazing, with the, the food web. Um, Well, it turns out (coughs) that, that iron, is a really important limiting factor in the oceans, and this is a story that's just unfolded in the last 15 years. Um, and <coughs> I'm not telling you in exactly the order that it unfolded, but more or less in the order that it unfolded. Um, a fellow named John Martin, who was a, a science, an oceanographer out at Moth Landing Marine Labs, uh, had been, been studying iron for quite a long time in the oceans, and um, And he had a hypothesis that iron was limiting, but most people wouldn't wouldn't believe him because most people, when they went out to measure iron in the oceans, got very high concentrations. So they said, how could that be limiting? Well, it turned out that most people were measuring contamination in their iron samples. And if any of you have ever been on a ship, uh, a a marine ship, if you look around the deck, you notice there's always rust. You know, they're constantly painting marine ships, right, because the the seawater is very corrosive and so there's rust everywhere. And um, it turns out that you have to be heroically clean in order to measure the concentration of iron in in, in seawater. And John Martin and his group realized this and went out and developed these these techniques to collect the sample and to have it never see air uh, before it went into the sample bottle and they acid washed the sample bottles through this process that takes weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, you had to really believe that iron was limiting in order to go through all this agony to measure the level. So, he was able to, his group was able to measure really low levels of iron in, in seawater. But still they didn't, weren't able to convince people because this was such a, such a totally different way of thinking about the oceans. There was a lot of pushback. He also argued that iron is is introduced to the oceans through atmospheric dust. This people (coughs) did believe. Um, And that the, if you look at the atmospheric dust flux, which is proportional to the iron flux, you see that in the Atlantic, it's relatively high because you have wind patterns coming off these deserts um, in Africa. And also, uh, over here in the western Pacific, it's relatively high. It's low down here around the Antarctic because there's no land source there. Um, so these patterns of dust delivery map on pretty well whoops, to, uh, to this discrepancy between what we see and what we model if, if nitrogen was the limiting nutrient. So what John Martin argued was that there's lots of nitrogen and phosphorus in these regions. Uh, but there's not enough iron for the phytoplankton to actually utilize that. Remember the red field ratio we talked about? How it's the availability of nutrients relative to what's required by the plant uh, that determines what's, what's limiting. So he did some experiments where he uh, went out in the boat and um, took samples and the control sample, he would add nothing. In another sample, we'd add uh, phosphorus and nitrogen. And another sample would add iron. And he was able to show that the addition of iron caused phytoplankton to bloom. He said, iron is limiting in these regions of the ocean. And everybody said, bah, bah, bah. No, it's not. We don't believe you. Um, you know, they, they made up reasons why these experiments couldn't be true. There aren't zooplankton in the bottles, so this and that and the other thing. Um, and <coughs> so, uh, so he persevered. Uh, And he said, okay, you don't believe my bottle experiments. I'm going to go out and I'm going to add iron to the ocean. (coughs) Then you'll believe me. So he said, we're going to go out with a boat. And um, what they did was, and my lab was involved in these experiments. We had a a small role in measuring a, that's a boat. Uh, And in measuring um, a certain component of the phytoplankton, Uh, But they pumped iron into the propeller wash of the boat and made a zigzag path in the ocean where this is about 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers. And the natural mixing in the surface ocean in about a day would mix that iron through that patch. And of course, meanwhile, the patch is moving. The oceans are moving. The patch is moving. They've got these location buoys. The captain of the ship is going crazy, trying to navigate relative to these buoys rather than relative to the to the solid Earth. But we're able to actually follow uh, the patch. <coughs> and oh, here's John Martin, uh, who was also a, a, a friend of mine. And sadly enough, he, he he died of cancer before the the results before this first experiment showed. Um, unequivocally that iron is limiting. But he he knew it was, so um, that was good. Anyway, he threw out this line, give me a half a tanker of iron and I'll give you the next ice age. Um, This was before the experiment, because he was trying to drum up enthusiasm for the experiment, uh, because he wanted to do the science. But you see the connection here, so what's the connection between a tanker of iron and an ice age? Exactly take, if you fertilize with iron, the phytoplankton uh, photosynthesize more uh, it could be argued that they draw more CO2 out of the air and will cool the planet okay so so he got a lot of attention because of that, even though this was a scientific experiment so now i'm going to and we'll come back to that of course later uh, uh, I'm going to take you. on an oceanographic cruise, so you know what it's like, uh, and this is one that my postdoc went on. This was not the first iron fertilization experiment. There have been about five of them now, um, but this was one of the, actually, one of the more recent ones that was done in the, in the southern ocean. They've been done in the, in the subarctic Pacific, in the equatorial Pacific. I went on the one in the equatorial Pacific, because uh, I'm a cruising lightweight, uh, but uh, my postdoc went on the one in the... Southern Ocean and that's where these slides come from. But just to show you what goes into doing this, um, these are the, the uh, vats where they mix the iron which they mix with an acid solution and they also put in sulfur hexafluoride which is an inert tracer so they can use that to trace the patch. Um, Here's the oceanographic ship. Um, Here's a, what, what, what you do when you launch a cruise is uh, you pack things in these vans. And sometimes you have your whole lab in the van and, in fact, for this trace metal clean work, they have special trace metal clean vans where they're all Teflon lined and um, positive air pressure and all of that. So you ship this down to the Antarctic and it gets loaded onto the ship, the van, and then <coughs> gets tied down. This is what the lab looks like before you, uh, before the scientists arrive. It's just a bunch of tables that are um, tied. and these labs get broken down and rebuilt for each cruise because different um, types of scientists have different needs. And this is what it looks like when everybody's uh, settled in. It's a very crude, makeshift thing. um, Crowded, very crowded with equipment and wires and uh, it's all set up temporarily for for a a month's worth of work. So here's the ship um, leaving port. Uh, they're going out of New Zealand, which is where they, where, where they, most of these cruises leave from for the Antarctic. Here it is in the rough seas of the Southern Ocean. You can't see this very well. Um, but that's an iceberg, uh, which is a big problem down there. Uh, uh, because that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so their navigation is, is, is very tricky. So here's a, a radar showing these icebergs scattered around that they have to, look look out for. Here's another one. Um, Okay, here's how the samples are taken. Um, These little uh, plastic PVZ pipes are all electronically uh, wired and this ball, um, when they're open, is drawn into it. So when these are lowered in the water, they fill up with water and then you trigger it and the ball shuts it and then you bring it up. So you can set it, say, This one goes up at 5 meters, that one 20, that one 50, that one 100, whatever. Wherever you want them, you set them. And then it comes up and you have your water sample. Um, Working in the Antarctic is particularly difficult. Uh, In this this case, this person is out there taking the snow off of these incubators uh, that have sample water in bottles, trying to make the phytoplankton think that they're still in the ocean, uh, but they're in controlled experiments here they're taking the ice off so that the light intensity stays the same. And this is to summarize the results of the iron fertilization experiment just in in a picture. Uh, This is the water without iron added and this is the water with iron added. Uh, The addition of iron to these waters causes major algal blooms. And here's just some of the data. We can just look at chlorophyll A, which you know is a measure of phytoplankton biomass. In the patch versus outside of the patch, and this is actually a satellite image um, taken off off of the NASA satellite of this iron enriched patch. <coughs> so, so there's no question now that the availability of iron uh, limits primary productivity over vast regions of the ocean. And because <coughs> I didn't think I was going to use the board, but I will use the board because. The red field ratio, which you guys now know, of ca- carbon to nitrogen to phosphorus, remember we talked about this, was 106 to 16 to 1. If we add iron to this, iron is about 0.005. Anyway. tiny amounts of iron are required relative to nitrogen and phosphorus um, in order for a phytoplankton cell to grow. So, the reason, so, so, so you can elaborate, if there's abundant nitrogen and phosphorus, it just takes a little bit of iron to get this big bloom. (coughs) And that was very appealing to people. Anytime it takes a little bit of something to get a lot of something, I think (laughs) people get interested. And I think what, what motivated this, this whole interest in ocean fertilization, I think, is motivated subconsciously a lot by, by man's ability to manipulate a system so large with so little effort, okay? But that's sort of a subtext. So, um, so, the success of these scientific experiments were really just to go out there and understand what regulated productivity in the oceans. Uh, were picked up very rapidly by entrepreneurs. And um, the, the proposals that were put forward uh, was to develop a commercial ocean fertilization industry where you'd fertilize the surface oceans with iron. And I'm kind of joking here that money comes out the bottom. Um, but uh, I'll show you how this works um, in a minute and, and and turn this into a, a business. and. There are a lot of unknown questions here. First, first, the experiments showed that you could increase the phytoplankton growth here, but they didn't show that you could increase this export, because the time scale of this is much longer than, than you can stay out on a ship to follow it. Um, so it could be that this is increased and then this arrow is increased and you have no net flux. There is a little data on this flux now. Um, but it's not, it's not compelling yet. Um, and the, then the next question is, if this was an industry, could you actually uh, verify how much carbon was exported, if it could be exported? And then the collateral effects, which we're going to talk about in a minute, could it be made profitable? And, and, what, and the biggest question is, what would the unintended consequences be of such an intentional fertilization? And this is where you guys come in, because you have learned in this class, uh, a lot of things that could help you uh, assess what the unintended consequences are. And we're going to talk about that. So, but how could you make money doing this? Uh, and it depends on a lot of things. Right now, you, you couldn't. Uh, but there are people depending on, on, on a future in which you could. And this is the way it, w- it works. There is an emerging market in, in carbon trading credit. Okay? Um, Especially for countries that that did sign the Kyoto uh, Accord, where there's a commitment to reducing CO2 emissions. And so so these carbon offset credits are worth money. So the way this would work is, if it worked, was you'd have this industry, you'd fertilize with iron, you'd be able to claim that you buried X amount of carbon in the deep ocean. (coughs) And with that claim, that would give you these carbon offset credits that are worth money, utilities companies could then buy those and if there was a cap on how much carbon emissions they could, could have, um, this would increase their cap. Okay? So, so th- this very, car- it's just like, you, you've probably heard about tree, tree plantations generating carbon offset credits um, and that, that's, that's a going industry now. Okay. So that's how it would work, and um, there are companies now, Th- these are some websites, Plankos.com, Um they have patents filed on this process, how they're able to do that is beyond me since it's published in the open literature, in the scientific literature, but, but they do. Um, <coughs> their mission is to develop formulations to manage and enhance phytoplankton productivity and carbon export. Um, there's another one that I d- you don't have in your slides. I just slipped this in this morning. But here's the, the website, Green Sea Venture, if you're interested. Uh, but it's another company that, that, that's marketing, marketing this idea. And um, here's another. I just saw this ad <coughs> last month in um, EOS, which is a, a publication of the um, American Geophysical Union and seek professionals uh, to work on an ocean nourishment demonstration. This is a new word. Uh, The oceans need to be nourished. Um, So, there's a psychology here that is, uh, they'll talk about ocean deserts that are, you know, nutrient poor, need to be nourished Uh, and this is not only for sequestering CO2 but the claim is to increase wild fish stocks uh, by fertilization. And um, so, so some, of, some, of these, some of these outfits are really on the edge of credibility and I would let you figure that out yourself. If you did enough research you could find out. That's not part of your assignment for the class. But, um, but some of them are actually, there are really uh, rational thinking scientists and engineers behind them. So, um, So there's a whole spectrum of people uh, interested in this. Um, Okay. So why am I concerned about it? Uh, In fact, one of my good friends really thinks we should, uh, who's a very good scientist, thinks we should explore the idea of fertilizing the southern ocean to bring the whales back because he thinks that the krill are gone, the whales are gone because the krill are gone, the krill are gone because the phytoplankton are gone. And the phytoplankton are gone because the whales aren't there to recycle the iron. So he thinks, and we don't know any of that, but that's the hypothesis. He thinks the the ecosystem needs to be jump-started by an iron fertilization. So just just to give you an idea of the the, the way people are starting to think about ecosystems and our ability to to manipulate them. So why am I worried about this? And why should you be worried? Because you know now, from taking this class, Uh, that it's not that simple, that ecosystems are are complex. And you know that when you create, if you fertilize with iron and you create a lot of organic carbon, phytoplankton, and some of that settles, a lot of that settles down to the deep ocean where there's no (coughs) productivity, if it's um, consumed and digested by bacteria, oxygen's going to be consumed, right? In respiration, heterotrophic bacteria, that's what you learn in the first, set of lectures, oxygen will be consumed, <coughs> carbon will be, uh, CO2 will be regenerated, but if you have enough of this, it will actually, the oxygen in the deep ocean waters will, will, um, will decrease and can even go anoxic if you do it long enough. And when you change the, that's the, the, the um, function of the system, the oxygen concentration, you change the community structure of the system and you'll have a different assemblage of microbes there than you had before. And one of the things that could happen, for example, is that you'd have, you'd increase the ammonia concentration by this remineralization. You could stimulate nitrification and denitrification, which you learned about in my second lecture, I think. Um, And you remember that a byproduct of that is nitrous oxide. And nitrous oxide, is also a greenhouse gas that is 300 times more effective, molecule per molecule, than CO2 in terms of its greenhouse capability, uh, in terms of its absorption of heat. So, you're doing this whole thing to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, but if uh, a side effect is creating nitrous oxide, the amounts of which are impossible to predict at this point, you could be worse off than you started. And none of these proposals take take this, into, this downstream effect into account. The other thing that can happen in low oxygen waters is, is the stimulation of methanogenic bacteria which uh, <coughs> produce methane that is 22 times more effective molecule per molecule as CO2 as a greenhouse gas. So there are, there are ecosystem consequences to this. Um, you can't just uh, say I'm going to add this and make carbon and that's the end of it. Because you make carbon, and things happen to that carbon. The other thing that is, is overlooked that you guys know about—remember this uh, diagram of global ocean circulation? If you fertilize the Southern Ocean with iron and utilize the nitrogen and phosphorus here, when those waters upwell <coughs> over here along the equator, that nitrogen and phosphorus isn't in them. Now. That nitrogen and phosphorus is fueling the productivity of these ecosystems upon which fisheries are based. People are fishing the fish from those systems. So those people should be able to say to these people, hey, you took my nitrogen and phosphorus, that has to be factored into your balance sheet. My loss of fish, my loss of income from the fish needs to be factored in to your balance sheet for your carbon credit. And if you do that, the profitability is really uh, marginal. Finally, if there are models uh, from a group at Princeton that show if you do this in a sustained way, um, <coughs> that after many, many years, this is 1500 which is the extreme, uh, but, <coughs> but even after 100 years, you create, this is um, latitude, here's the equator, 40 degrees north, 40 degrees south, so this is a broad swath of, of the oceans and this is depth, okay? So this shows a huge, huge anoxic zone in the oceans that would be caused by sustained fertilization in this way. Not surprising, you're making a lot of organic carbon. It's going to be consumed by bacteria. Okay. So, <clears throat> that is all um, a story, a scenario to get you thinking about your future and your relationship with the, the Earth's ecosystems in the future because our relationship with these systems is changing dramatically. We're now in, we're now in charge. We've been in charge for a while but we haven't taken the responsibility of being in charge for a while uh, of these systems. And, and your generation is going to be making these kinds of decisions uh, as we move forward and we experience the aftermath of some of the, the manipulations we've done in the past like burning fossil fuels and, and, and increasing CO2 in the atmosphere. There will be choices to make. Do we just adapt to this global warming or do we try to, do we, ha- do we know enough about how the Earth works to try to counteract it in ways like fertilizing the oceans? And then you'll have to decide are the risks of fertilizing the oceans much greater than the risks of adapting to climate change. Um, and, a, and a new trend in, in thinking about the Earth is thinking about nature and ecosystems as not simply as something that we value because um, they're part of our world and we should set up reserves so that we can enjoy them and see nature and so generations in the future will know what natural ecosystems look like, but starting to think of, of ecosystems as things that provide services for humans um, and actually have a monetary value that is not part of our economy, it's not part of our economic system, but they provide functions um, to our world uh, for free. And so as we destroy them, we're losing those functions. Um, And this is a a very well-known paper that there's a journal called Ecological Economics that, that tries to talk about factoring in. Um, the, the e- ecosystems into our economy. And this is a very um, well-known paper on the value of the world's ecosystem services and natural capital. And that it's evaluated, of course this is impossible to do, but uh, you've got to try. So they evaluated the ecosystem services as worth um, $33 trillion. Uh, and. Just a, just, this is just a brief list of some of the services um, that they analyze in this. Uh, one that's pretty easy to wrap your brain around is the pollination of crops by insects. We rely on insects to pollinate crops. Um, they do it for free, and we rely on that. And this is estimated, just this is estimated to be worth $6 billion, um, that if you had to hire somebody to manually pollinate your crops, if there were no bees and all the things that are doing it. It would cost $6 billion globally. Um, there's decomposition of waste, recycling nutrients, dispersion of seeds, control of pests, uh, purification of the air and water. Ecosystems do this. And this this is compared to the um, GNP of $18 trillion per year, um, the global gross national product. So. <coughs> This is sort of a shift in our thinking about how we think about ecosystems. And just in the last, this slide was in one of your handouts about, I don't know, five lectures ago, but I didn't get to it, so I I thought I'd bring it in now. Just in the last, um, uh, well, April 14th was announced this Millennium Ecosystem Assessment Report, uh, which was over a thousand scientists worldwide assessing the state of the Earth global ecosystems and um, from the point of view, of uh, strengthening capacity to manage ecosystems sustainability for human well-being. You know, so the focus is on how do we manage these things for ourselves and the future generations. And I will, not y- you can go to the website if you want to get depressed um, <laughs> but, uh, well, you can get depressed but, about what we've done but it's, it's you can be optimistic that we're really facing up to this challenge in a very systematic way. Uh, but the bottom line is that two-thirds of the natural machinery of the Earth has already been degraded by, by humans. And um, water use, dramatic, major rivers are dry before they reach the oceans. We're, we're mining groundwater, basically. We're taking water out of the ground much faster than it's being recharged. Um, one quarter of all fish stocks are already overharvested. I mean, we're in a non-sustainable mode, I I don't need to tell you, you read the newspaper and and you know this. Um, And uh, so I'll I'll skip over, oops, oh, I'll just, just this last part I think is the most important. the, the, The argument is that more and more people are moving, going to be living in the cities in the future, so less and less in touch with nature. So, nature is going to be more and more of an abstraction to us and people are really worried about this because conservation of natural spaces is not just a luxury. Um, this is a dangerous illusion and that ignores our dependency on these systems and we have to really uh, strengthen that, that understanding. Okay. so So, now I want to leave you, this slide Uh, Several students have told me it's the only thing they remember from this class and and my other ecology class. And that makes me very happy. If this is the only thing you remember, that's great because this is really the take-home message for you as generations, um, you and your generation. And this is how we have changed our relationship to the Earth. And this is where we are right now. So you learned in the first lecture about the biosphere Autotrophs producing organic carbon, heterotrophs consuming organic carbon. And there's a little bit of, of input from the Earth's crust, nitrogen um, and phosphorus. And this system, uh, but this system running pretty well before humans. And before the Industrial Revolution, societies fit into this system uh, of tight recycling, taking a little bit off of the autotrophic productivity. And putting a little bit of waste into the system. But then we had the Industrial Revolution. We've cut down massive amounts of trees. Um, we've changed the, the very landscape of the autotrophic system. And we've we dramatically increased the waste stream. And we're mining the lithosphere in a, in a huge way. Um, elements. Uh, Uh, mining for um, metals and things used in in manufacturing, et cetera, which is, of course, increasing this waste stream. So this is where we are now and we know that this is not sustainable the way we're operating. So here's, this is your generation's decision. Uh, Are you going to go this way or are you going to go that way? It's Very simple. Uh, You got to point your compass in the right direction. So this way just increases these, Streams, the waste stream and the the erosion of the natural ecosystems and the mining from the lithosphere. This stream works toward recycling within the societies that we've already built, uh, restoring natural ecosystems so they can do their their functions properly for cleaning air and water uh, and having, leaving enough productivity for the rest of the heterotrophs on land you know, we're not the only heterotrophs. There are all these other species that rely on this primary productivity, the birds and the, uh, well, all, all the species. Uh, so we need to leave some of that for them so the ecosystems uh, can sustain themselves. And so this is where we should be um, and we just need to find the, the will to get there. Um, <coughs> so easily said, not easily done. Uh, and there's an organization called the National Step. I put the, this this website, um, which you might want to write down because I don't th- th- think this was on your slide. If you're interested, you can write it down. Um, that I think has a very very creative approach to working with industry, to try to, to direct things in the right direction, um, and where they talk about the compass, and they say there's basic system conditions for sustainability that that if we don't um, maintain, we will be going in the wrong direction. And, and it's, it's just a total no-brainer. It's very simple. Substances from the Earth's crust must not systematically increase in nature. Obviously that's not sustainable um, if you do that. And substances produced by society must not systematically increase in nature. We can't keep pouring waste into nature. Um, the physical basis for the productivity and diversity of nature, i.e. that the green part, the autotrophic cycle, can't be systematically deteriorated. And then they add to this, we must be efficient enough to meet basic human needs. We have to work toward efficiency, which is working toward tightening this recycling here. And um, they've been very effective in, in many countries. and and pointing uh, industries in the right direction. Every time that they make a decision about what metal to use in a particular uh, manufacturing process, they look at how much of that metal has already been mined, is there an alternative metal that they could use, et cetera. Um, They're constantly looking at this this compass. Okay. Um, So, uh, this is obviously Compass not pointed in the right direction—a <laughs> no-brainer. Building cars that use more fuel uh, and get less miles per gallon is not the right direction. So some of these, some of these are very easy to answer, uh, and uh, and I don't want to cast aspersions on SUVs, but in case you didn't recognize it, that's what that is. Uh, <coughs> And, I mean, their there, fuel efficiency is here. We can, we can have it if we want to. Um, and we need to work on that. Uh, and finally, well, this isn't finally. This is second to finally. Um, I love this cartoon. Uh, this is the doctor, Saturn, or whatever, looking at the Earth and, and diagnosing our planet at this stage in its evolution. Um, and finally, I'll leave you with this image, which is... My favorite image of the earth um, because it has no national boundaries, and it really does remind us that it's a, a living planet and and, and that time is now I mean I know this sounds overdramatic, but it's not i mean we've we've changed this planet so much in the last two hundred years relative to all the years before, and the next fifty years your your time um, to make a difference is absolutely critical so I hope you guys will go off and save the planet for us. Have fun, and have a great summer.